Women Making Waves. So I had a really interesting couple of evenings, actually, Linda, a couple of weeks ago. We have a family friend. In fact, it's Simon's cousin, who I think have just been brilliant, actually. They have decided to host three families, three families in their house. And they say it's been life enriching to have three families who have come from Ukraine. Of course, we're talking about Ukrainian war at the moment. And they have decided they want to help and they're hosting three families. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It really is. That is absolutely brilliant. We thought about doing the same and so did my sister-in-law. Mm. My, my sister-in-law stays, um, stays in the Highlands and the problem actually that they had was nobody particularly wanted to be as far out as she was, you know, away from away from the main cities and from potentially their other friends and family, understandably, because people will want to stay in contact with well, not just their family, but other Ukrainians as well. well. That's it. That's right. It's all very well saying, isn't it, that they're going to come over here and in, in the UK and be safe. But it's not as simple as that, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. And you, you probably want to be where you can buy food that you're used to eating and all that exactly. kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, there's nothing there's nothing particularly simple about this. And of course, I think a lot of Ukrainians have chosen to stay quite close to Ukraine as well. All, of course, hoping to go back home as soon as this war is over and start rebuilding mm. the country again. Don't we all wish for it to be over very soon? Absolutely. For Ukrainian people, basically. It's, it's really harsh. And on that note... We spoke to someone very, very interesting, didn't we? Yes, we did indeed. We did indeed. We're going to be speaking to Tatiana Preobrazhenska. And she has actually chosen to stay in Kiev. They did move out of Kiev for a little while when the Russians were nearby and it was shelled. But they are now back in Kiev. You'll hear what Tatiana says. Very, very interesting conversation with her. And we also have been chatting to a composer. That's exciting, isn't it? Because we've had we've had lots of musicians on in the past, but this is an actual composer of classical music, Susie. We're going up in the world, I think. <laughs> we are going up in the world. I think it's also really interesting as well that she was and is still an entertainment's lawyer and she decided, didn't she, that she wanted to change career. And I, I really, really enjoy listening to women who decide they want to do something very different. That's absolutely right. And her name is Lisa Logan. And she she has recently had not just one, but two <laughs> premieres of her work. It's all kind of coming to a head for her and she's really thrilled and excited about it. So we're going to have an absolutely great chat with Lisa Logan as well. You're listening to Women Making Waves radio show and podcast, brought to you by Susie Thorpe and Linda Ness. This show is all about women doing extraordinary things. Lisa Logan is a composer whose first opera, A Silver Spoon, the love story of Princess Diana and Dodie, will premiere in July 2022. But Lisa's already busy workshopping her second opera, Bronte, and her children's piece, The Magical Fish, is also premiering in June as part of the Jubilee celebrations with Docklin Sinfonia. And I know, Lisa, that you have already done lots of other works. 
Lisa, you're really, really busy at the moment. So thank you very much for taking the time out to talk to us today. Hi there. Good to chat with you today. Let's go right back. When did you first get into music and singing? When, when did it first appeal to you? I mean, all the way through my childhood, I, I sang. So I sang in a Leicester children's choir. I think it was the first time I did lots of singing. Then um, I sang in Leicester Cathedral Choir and I was at Leicester Grammar School and sang in a couple of choirs there. So that's where it all started. And you ended up going to Cambridge. So how did that come about? Because you were a choral scholar. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I had a really happy time at Cambridge. So I was a choral scholar at Gonville and Keys College. And um, that was a sort of very busy schedule, you know, three services a week and um, two rehearsals. And it's, it's the most incredible musical training. Did you study law at that point as well? Was that what your studies were? Yeah, so I, I read law at Cambridge, was a choral scholar. I, I, I think <laughs> I wasn't the best law student and it probably represents that it wasn't, well, you know, I, I don't say my, not my real calling because I do still enjoy doing it as my job. But um, it's certainly music and drama has always, I feel, been quite a calling as well. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of got told off for doing far too many extracurricular things. <laughs> I'm tempted, I must ask this, the law, you know, it's wonderful that you did that at Cambridge, but I know music is also quite an amazing degree at Cambridge too. What tempted you to go from music to law? Is that something that you were sort of in a quandary about when you went to university? Just meaning, yeah. was it your dad or your mum? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you well do law, Lisa. Yeah. No, but I think, I think, you know, my, my background, I guess, is a little bit unusual because I found composing and music later on in life so I was never introduced to composing or really taught music particularly well at school in an academic side so I didn't do what was then O level I didn't do A level and I was not exposed to it at all all I did is singing so the singing was fantastic yeah so I wasn't on the academic path to think about doing it in Cambridge and it's just been since um, I've been doing a master's in composition at King's College London the last few years. So that's where the academics came in. But later. Oh, what did you do when you left Cambridge? What did you do next? Yeah. So um, when I um, left Cambridge, so at Cambridge, I sort of had law and um, music and opera running in parallel in a sense. And so I was uh, in my 20s, I was an opera and theatre director professionally. So I worked at Opera North and assisted David McVicker. And I was an assistant director at one of the regional theatres. So that's oh. what I did when I first when I first left Cambridge. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. Mm. Did you enjoy that? That must have been really exciting. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed that. What happened was, and it's just isn't a bit of a sob story, but I guess it's, you know, it explains why I made the change to use my law degree is I got into a lot of debt. It just, um, I think now everybody's paid for what they do when I went into that career loads of it was unpaid work even all the assistant directing and I got myself into a lot of debt and so that was when I had a conversation it wasn't the dad but it was the godfather my godfather Jack <laughs> <laughs> took me out for lunch when I had my opera north job and said Lisa <laughs> I think you should use your law degree so that's what happened you know I kind of I was doing what I loved I couldn't afford to do it I'm not from a particularly affluent background and um yeah I just couldn't afford to support myself with it so that's what I used my law degree and I did the sensible thing of qualifying to be a lawyer well mm. you certainly have been successful because I know the firm that you work for and it is a leading law firm I've worked in the legal sector myself and I know how demanding it is 
how the heck do you find the time to do all of the things that you're doing? It's quite demanding, really, quite a demanding career. I do often think, what if I discovered composing earlier? But so I've got children and my children are now 14 and 16. And I just think I could never have done this when I got primary age children. So, yes, I love my legal career, but, you know, I, I can do it and I've got the brain space for it. And then I wanted to be a good mother. So there's no way I could have composed at that stage because, you know, children came first and I would not have had the time to dedicate to it. Whereas now they're teenagers they're embarrassed by being near their mother <laughs> yeah <laughs> like I know what you mean want, they don't want any time with me and so that's when I started composing you know I know it probably doesn't make sense to all the sort of I have to say sort of white, typical white male composers out there but you know it's kind of for me it's like well actually this kind of makes sense because now I have time to compose in an evening and a weekend yes I'm a lawyer by day and I I'm happy with that life choice because I've got a family to support and because they don't need me as much now I've got time to compose so if, yeah. for me it's like it's explaining why this has come later in my life and I feel that if I found it earlier so let's say 15 years ago I discovered composing I think that wouldn't have been so good because then I would never have you know, the hours I dedicate to it, I wouldn't have done at that time. I would have probably thought, oh, I love that, put it aside, never done it. Whereas I started it when I had time. You know, I, I think some of my story is about how do women compose? And I know some of it's a story of someone discovering composing later. But I feel my story is also about how do women do it when they've got children and when do they compose? And I feel part of my story is all about the time to do something when your children are slightly older. Mm. Yeah, but it strikes me then, Lisa, that there are times in our lives where we have the the creative moments or the motivation to do something. So does that reflect in how you compose and what you're composing at the time? You just said you know, one of yours was the, the children's um, music. Is that something that you wouldn't have done beforehand? Because having children is obviously giving you that insight. But do you find that your whole interest in certain styles and genres of the opera has really changed too since since university? Um, I certainly think that when you're composing about big life emotions or moments, that it's so much better when you do it when you're older. And I think sometimes directors would say this too, or actors, that there's things you don't understand in your twenties. It's very um, true. So I feel that was so much of what I'm composing with, with different stories at the moment, for sure. I, th- I think I, th- I think that's right, Susie. Mm. I'm curious because you started as a singer. At mm. what point did you decide to start composing? Was it something that was always in you or did you reach a point of going, do you know what? I quite fancy writing this myself. I often think if only I'd discovered how much I love composing so so long ago because you know I love it so much I kind of think how did I not know all I can say is I just didn't so what happened is I mean this really might make you chuckle so when my son was around age nine he was doing the 11 plus which is horrendous I don't know if it's the horrendous in Cambridge too but it's horrendous the London system so I was trying to get him in the music scholarships and so I took him for composing lessons because I thought and apply for the 11 plus music scholarships you know might quite help if he composes a piece or something so anyway we took him to these composing lessons and he was really rather grumpy and you know so I basically said to the teacher I said look my son's a bit grumpy about this I don't suppose you'd teach me instead is what happened so this so this 11 plus guy suddenly ended up with the mum I mean it's really I do just do chuckle about it all and so (laughs) then I just realized it was like I explain it to people it's like 
there being this language where you're suddenly fluent. I don't know if you heard when people like suddenly have a brain injury and they suddenly they're fluent in Chinese or something. But basically, I did these composition lessons that was meant to be my son and basically I took over. And I just literally within a month, I just realised I just got everything. It was the the strangest thing. And of course, I'm still learning an enormous amount, but it was, it was really literally like becoming fluent, fast in something. Yeah. And then I realised how much I loved it. And then this original teacher was off on honeymoon. He said, I can't teach you for three months. And I thought, I can't have a gap. You know, I'm loving this. <laughs> and so... Yeah, and so then I found another teacher who has ended up being my teacher all the way through. And he is, I say he's like being taught by a contemporary Mozart. He's somebody called Michael Susani Wills. He, he's just the most amazing teacher. And so that's what happened. I was concerned about being seen as being self-taught because there are quite a lot of self-taught composers out there. And I was concerned about being seen as an older woman suddenly composing, self-taught and being really dismissed. And so I thought I really need to, need to fill in some gaps here. So I did a music A-level in a year and Trinity Laban took me on and then King's College who originally actually rejected me when I did the music A-level and that's then when I got um, the premiere for A Silver Spoon accepted said no we're going to give you a place on the Masters without you having to do a a BA because I said I don't want to do a music BA I've got a BA you know I just want to do the composing so that's what happened Um, so King's College then took me on for the Masters in composition and um, yeah so I've just had an array of brilliant teachers and really dedicated myself to it did you at some stage and you have the most amazing experience and you definitely can do it I'm not questioning that but did you have the imposter syndrome at any well, stage it, it's funny because you know I'd, I'd be so loved to hear the other women you interview so mm. I think coming into this older I'm really keen never to be arrogant but this is how I think and I don't see this just with music I see this with women everywhere still I don't like the glass ceiling. I think there is glass ceilings everywhere still. So the way I explain it to people is this. There's a room with a glass ceiling and I'm not going in it. I don't (laughs) enter the room with the glass ceiling. I do this my way and my way isn't a room and it doesn't have a roof. (laughs) I think that's good. Yeah. This is how I think, because I applied to the Guildhall for that opera course. And honestly, I mean, I really shouldn't. I mean, it, it, it clearly wasn't a fit because I just had too much independent thought. But that to me was the glass ceiling but King's College gave me a chance Sylvania Milstein Mm. and she's been incredible Mm. so so not an imposter syndrome but I think there's a lot of glass ceilings around there and I just didn't want to get stuck so I know there's many people way better than me I don't feel it's it's an imposter syndrome but I certainly never want to be arrogant I'm still learning so even yesterday when I had a lesson with Sylvania and I said to her I said it's funny everything feels like this hill where you got to the top of it and you think I know it now but you just don't yeah. see the mountain you know so <laughs> so, yeah, so by size chunks <laughs> yeah so I feel there's lots of hills and I you know like it's a bit misty you don't quite see that mountain so yeah so I definitely never want to be arrogant but I don't have an imposter syndrome but I do feel from a female point of view that there are a lot of glass ceilings around and if I sense it then I don't try to enter that room to break the glass ceiling. In my mind, I think I'm just going to take another route. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting, Uh, really interesting. The process of creating music, Lisa, could Mm. you just give us a little insight to how you would start off? So I would say each piece has been really different with how I compose it. At the moment, for example, with my third opera, I might often um, compose an aria or a duet first, or I composed a 
one of the choruses first because sometimes it gives me a key in usually I'm really trying to create um, an emotion or a theme or a an environment and then I will compose textures and melodies around that. Sylvania is brilliant because she you know when people are meant to be sort of auditory or visual or text-based it might surprise you but I'm incredibly visual even though you'd think it would be the auditory but I think I'm a visual learner as the absolute top and what was interesting is Sylvina is who's the main um, professor of music at King's College London has been teaching me to compose and she'll show me pictures so she might show me a really contemporary picture where it's not um an obvious naturalistic picture but it's broken up and she'll say do that with your music so we'll take a really beautiful melody and then we'll break it up we might do that but there's loads of ways in but I, I use all loads of different techniques actually to try and get into the heart of something on your website which is lisalogan.co.uk you mention that you are into doing crossover projects can you explain what that means yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to do more. So I think crossover projects can be with a spoken narrator rather than a voice. So I did that with The Magical Fish. And um, I, I'd like to do more, actually. I, I don't know quite where this would lead, because I, I think there's possibilities sometimes of maybe using... Um, a, a spoken character like theatre does but with music underneath that's obviously mm. different to an opera that's sung I'd say watch this space on that because my mind's going with what I'd like to try but I haven't done it yet one of my questions is going to be what's your ultimate big game when it comes to where you are now but obviously I think you've just said that you like to you don't like to plan you just like to discover things ahead mm. is that something how you feel I mean, um, coming into composing later in my life, in a certain way, it's giving me more focus. Like, you know, if I've got 20 or 30 years, hopefully, to, to compose, what would I like to do? Um, I mean, opera is my absolute passion. So I think, you know, it takes at least 18 months to two years for each opera. So I just want to compose more operas. You know, I've got another two librettos already. So I'm composing my third opera now. I've got the fourth libretto. I'm going for breakfast with a librettist on Friday to try and persuade her to write another one and oh, the librettist wow. the librettist for Silver Spoon's also writing another one you know because you, it takes a while to get great librettos so in answer to your question I, I love strong female characters and I do feel as, as amazing as contemporary operas are that I feel there's not enough really good female characters mm, yeah so if there's anything I can contribute it's driving that as a composer to insist upon it in the librettos yeah in my dream I'd love to do some symphony work, do a symphony. That mm. would be my real dream. But it, it is difficult to get those opportunities. Um, but Hackney Broms um, have asked me to compose a quintet. Uh, I'm still composing that for the November. Just smaller projects are equally uh, yeah. rewarding. You say that you were a late comer to, to opera. Obviously, you always loved music, so you're not really late, but you're late to composing, as you say. Mm. Um, to maybe even an older generation or a younger generation, what would you say to somebody who wanted to compose? Where would they begin, do you think? you know, What would be a sort of a first step for them? I mean, I would say really make sure that you've got the, the fundamentals. So just make sure that you do do harmony courses and counterpoints. Mm. Because I think that even when you break those rules, you come back to them. And I've been incredibly careful to make sure that I, I've got the fundamentals taught well. And then depending upon which route they want to take, I would say just make sure you've got some financial stability. Yeah. So my legal career is enabling me to have some financial stability so I can do 
styles of music that don't make much money. So, you know, opera composers probably won't make anything. And classical music, unfortunately, I don't think pays particularly well, which is why a lot of people do end up uh, being university professors and things. You know, I'm not looking to have another career that pays me. But you see, composing could pay a lot if they're going to film and TV. So I think it just depends what they like as to whether they then need some bread and butter. We've already mentioned that you've got a couple of premieres coming up. Really exciting. Yes, that's right. Um, we've got the love story of Princess Diana and Dodie Fayed, The Silver Spoon, as well yes. as The Magical Fish, which you've mentioned. Uh, in fact, the, the premieres are about five days apart, aren't they? That's all kind of never rains, but it pours. I know. I just, I'm honestly, I, I actually haven't told anybody on my course because I just think, oh my God, you know, it's slightly embarrassing. In your I, face. I know. I, I did say to you, I don't want to be arrogant. So I'm not totally one. I'm so. <laughs> I have told friends, and obviously we're publicising both really effectively, but it's just a bit of luck. You know, some of this is luck. So The Magical Fish, it's a free um, concert for the Jubilee in Limehouse. And um, yeah, what's just really exciting is, yes, it's opportunities for me, but I'm just thrilled that we got funding for a free event for children and families in yeah. East London. You know, it, it was just fantastic when we got that funding. And um, I don't know if you saw the BBC Jubilee pudding competition yes um but we've managed to get one of the finalists of the five finalists to bake, bake cakes so you know we're just all we're just completely excited about this jubilee event oh, and then and then like you say within five days we've got the premiere of a silver spoon which is the love story of princess diner and dodie and um yeah i just feel very lucky for two opportunities and the fact they're close was it was the funding for the jubilee it had to be done in june mm. how involved with the with the productions have you been? Are you turning up to every rehearsal and going, no, that's not right? Or are, are you not involved at all? Or what's what's the balance? Well, um, I mean, I'm really very happy just to hand things over. And uh, again, I guess it's the maturity and the fact I did uh, I've got the professional directing experience from my 20s that the last thing I want to do is to be the annoying composer in the room. <laughs> um, but I hope it's been helpful because and because of COVID, we've actually completely planned uh, where people will walk already with the simple design. So I did say, I said, look, I think we need we need this all planned. So if anybody you know, catches COVID again or whatever, we know what we're doing. So it's all planned for that reason. So it wasn't like it was the composer stepping on people's toes, we were just being practical because of the pandemic to say, look, we need this planning. Mm -hmm. So we've done more planning than you would normally. Silver Spoon. I'm fascinated by the story of Dinah and Dodie. I was fascinated by her as a person, as a woman. Mm. And I'm interested to know why you decided you wanted to write about them as an opera. What, What gave you the inspiration to do that? I think it's rather good that you are. Thank you. I appreciate that. I definitely would like each opera project to be about really um, strong contemporary women. And I Mm. think Diana was. I obviously would want to to do something that nobody's touched on for a live opera before. There was something on TV, but no one's done it as a live opera story. I'm looking for things that I feel would work best with an opera. And I think, you know, unfortunately what happened to them, you know, their tragedy, the emotions to do with her divorce and things, they're big operatic subject matter, actually. Yeah. And then my, you know, my job during the day as a media lawyer and mainly television, I'm I'm constantly with TV producers that are pitching ideas 
that would pull in an audience. And so I do look for things that I think would be bigger subject matter for an audience. So to me, mm. it, it all came from that. Mm. Some very well-known contemporary opera for me is a female stories that really frustrates me. Yeah. So um, it can be about um, a, a royal that's had an affair that's just a woman that's some kind of you know contemporary courtesan I guess all those others which is about a wife and her lover and I'm just like this is all stuff that's like old-fashioned opera and you're just updating it and where are the modern characters and I feel Diana was a strong character I mean I know that she she did have lovers in her life but I think with fire you know this is a, this is a love story where she was free to have another man and I think she did amazing things with how she, um, in a certain sense, changed contemporary, the modern royals. So yeah. I, I think there's yeah. a big story there that I felt was really grabbing a female character and telling her story in ways that I think modern opera hasn't always done particularly well. And do you stick to her story or do you add lib a bit to it? Or do you find that you, you want to add something that you thought she might have done? Yeah, well, David, the so D- David um, Pima is the librettist. And um, so when he was writing, we had lots of conversations about, you know, h- how do we tell the story of Dodie and Diana? Because it, lots of people know the public face of Diana, but obviously we see very little of the private. So in the opera, without giving too much away, it's private scenes. And of course, we had to, well, David had to use his imagination with what would Diana and Dodie have said in private. Yeah, well, I shall definitely be looking out for that. I know, Absolutely. sounds fabulous, yeah. actually. Yeah. It sounds brilliant. It's been great That's to talk great. to you today, it really it has. has. Yeah. yeah, thank you very much, Lisa Logan, and we'll be looking out for you to see, uh, to see <laughs> what happens to you. Thank you for chatting with me, I really appreciate it.